0: Welcome to Growing Trends. This is Chris, and may I introduce Anne. Today, we're interviewing Bill Sosinski from Energyne University and Joe Rivet, and we're talking about algae.
1: yet, or is this the first time? This is the first time. I've not had a chance to talk with him yet.
2: Well, then, Joe Reve, uh, uh Chris Cooper, <laughs> Chris Cooper, Joe Revey.
1: <laughs> Hello. Hi,
2: Joe. I'm
0: a transplanted Brit, and Anne, me as well. So how's the weather with you guys? You're all in different parts of the world, I think, or country.
1: Yeah, it's, it's beautiful out here, cool. in uh, out on the West Coast in Seattle. Uh, we're having a nice, sunny day today.
2: Cool. raining cold here, <laughs> but but it's supposed to get nice today, uh, 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 on Saturday, so... We can do a little rainy and cold.
1: Well, at least
0: you're getting rain. Some places haven't had any rain yet. We had some last night, but it's really kind of intermittent these days.
3: We so- have not had enough rain at all. Hello, everybody. This Hi, is Ann. Hello, Ann. Hey. How are you doing, Bill?
2: I'm doing well. I want to introduce you to uh, Joe Reve. Joe is director for aquaculture in Energon and is a real, absolutely knows everything about algae there is to know. <laughs> well, oh, I love it. It is a
3: pleasure to meet you. I really am so, so, so grateful, Chris and I both are, that y'all take the time to, to speak with us. We really just can't tell you enough how much we look forward to it.
1: Oh, absolutely. Glad to be with you here. Yeah, the that's reverse is absolutely great.
2: true. Well, that's good So to where hear. do you guys want to start <laughs> this conversation tonight? My suggestion might be that we started off with a uh, discussion about the different commercial uses for algae, how important algae is going to be in the future, particularly as we move into the century, in terms of maybe uh, supplementing our food chain, doing other things that algae is wonderful at. But it, that might be a good way to start off. Okay, I'm not sure how you want to Sounds frame good to me. the conversation. Chris is looking at me funny.
3: <laughs> Am I not right here? I'm just getting the
0: baton out so that I can go on the third beat.
3: Please
2: start. Yeah. One, oh. two, oh, three. My gosh. Why don't we keep the subject then as the importance of algae in the 21st century and the new and developing technologies and applications for algae production that are coming online right now that are going to impact people's future and the uh, impact people in the future. Yeah. Maybe that's I uh, like that. a good subject. Sounds great. Yeah. All
3: right, so Chris, you start. Here we go.
0: Oh. So can you explain a little bit about How this all got started, and the research and everything you've been doing. Sure, maybe you might want to.
1: I can. Yeah, I'd be happy to give a little background about myself and how I got to the topic of algae here.
0: It seems like an unusual subject, but I suppose in Washington, you're in Washington. Well, no,
1: if you would have told me 25 years ago this would be a topic of mine, I would have uh, been a little bit skeptical on that. So yeah, I agree with you. Uh, uh, I came came to this topic in a rather roundabout way. So. would you so like you're a,
0: a marine biologist. <laughs> I
1: Is consider you? myself a biologist, but I actually uh, most of my uh, studies are in engineering. So, oh. yeah. If you, should I give? A little background about myself then? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, I, I'm originally from the the Midwest. I was born in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I grew up in Madison. And uh, when I look back on uh, growing up in Wisconsin, some of my favorite memories have to do with family vacations that we took. My, my parents, my brother, myself, we would usually just get in a car and go camping or go, go up to northern Wisconsin, rent a cabin up there. And we spent a lot of time out on lakes fishing. So I think that was probably the beginning of my interest, a deeper appreciation of water resource management, water quality issues, and just that uh, I was fascinated with uh, aquatic ecology in general. So that's probably how it got started. I, I went on to uh, study at the University of Wisconsin and I studied uh, molecular biology. I was, uh, took a lot of classwork in environmental toxicology because I was interested in how we could use microorganisms potentially to clean up environmental pollutants. I was really lucky while I was at the University of Wisconsin because I, I got to work in a number of research labs starting in environmental engineering And then I went into plant pathology. I I was looking at biological control of root pathogens in soybeans. And then uh, after I graduated, I went into soil science. I was a lab manager for a year. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to graduate school at that time, so I worked as a lab manager, which was great. I was an intermediary between professors and graduate students, got to work on some composting field studies. uh, That's when I decided I I really wanted to go to graduate school, so I uh, packed up and moved out to Seattle, uh, where I am currently, to uh, attend the University of Washington. I was going to do a uh, non-thesis master's, but at the end of my first year, I took a lake studies class. From uh, Professor Michael Brett. Ironically, the the first paper that we read in that class was a lake about lake in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. So I moved all the way out to Seattle to learn about a lake mm-hmm. that was a couple miles from my parents' home there. And, oh but,
3: my goodness, <laughs> that's literally a small but, world, there isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it,
1: it, it brought me right back. Yeah, it brought me right back wow. to and fishing. So uh, DeBrett offered me a position as a teaching assistant, a research associate in his lab, where I began to study algae, and I've been in algae for about the last fifteen years. Wow. So that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of some insight as to how I got on the topic.
3: Now, I know working with Bill, your concerns are continuing to evolve, becoming more and more global. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. let's that's, touch uh, on that. Well, part of what we want to accomplish is to be able to bring food production systems to a local level so that... No matter where in the world we're looking at, we want to be able to empower local communities to grow their own food, do it in a sustainable way. I think we both agree, uh, Bill and myself, that algae is a big component in some of the aquaponics and aquaculture systems that we're looking at, this integrated approach. It enables us to take this food production facility and put it anywhere in the world and train people how to use it so it, they can sustain it for themselves and, and feed them the local communities. It's so
2: fast. I'm sorry. I don't think people understand quite what the the attributes are of some different types of algae, such as spirulina, chlorella, things that that have amazing uh, attributes in terms of improving people's health, providing a nutritional, uh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong way to put it, to give them a basis or a base uh, nutritional content in their diet. This is more important as uh, food is becoming much harder to get, particularly in the third world people. There's Mm -hmm. larger, uh, people are starving more these days.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, stylized. I want to
3: hear about this because so, do you make a stir fry with a uh, with algae? How this is this gonna work?
1: I think to put this into context, it's, it's useful to spend a, mo- a minute or two just to talk about the history of human cultivation of algae and, and what, where we are today. So, I mean, if you look back, and Bill mentioned spirulina, some of the earliest recorded evidence of humans cultivating algae go back to cyanobacteria in, in China more than 2,000 years ago, in, in western China, where it was very dry. They started harvesting a cyanobacteria called nostoc. Actually, it was this nostoc harvest was credited with getting populations through times of famine, so it, was, it became a very important part of their diet. Even today, they make a soup from China they called façai. It's made from this Nostoc. I've had it a few times. It's really good. I actually enjoy it. Uh, They usually uh, have it during the Lunar New Year celebrations. So it's one example of how it's become integrated into their food. I mean, today in China, between 60 and 70 species of algae are used. And then if you bring it forward, just even into the 16th century, the Aztec, their capital city, Tenochtitlan. Tenochtitlan. They built it on an island in the middle of a lake, Lake Texcoco. And that was the first case of humans harvesting spirulina. They made it into these little green cakes, actually like energy bars, you can think of them. And especially when they were going to have people traveling, uh, they gave them these little energy bars and they were set to go for some hard travel. Uh, When the Spaniards arrived in the 1500s, They found a city of a quarter million people, and a big part of their diet was spirulina, believe it or not. Oh, that's fascinating. it it brings us to where we are today. And one thing I'd like to mention, it's it's a little bit of a nomenclature thing, but the biologists out there will will get, get us on this here. When we talk about algae, we often include cyanobacteria like spirulina, when actually algae is a group of eukaryotic organisms. The the cell biology is a little bit more structured. They have a membrane-enclosed nucleus, and a lot of membrane-enclosed organelles, like humans, are eukaryotes. Cyanobacteria are prokaryotes. They have some of the oldest organisms on Earth, and that's important when you start to think about culturing them for harvesting. The prokaryote cyanobacteria Mm -hmm. and the algae, which evolved much later, from cyanobacteria. They have much different environmental requirements, different nutritional, different strategies for survival. So kind of have to separate those two groups out, although both of them have their place in human nutrition. I think, you know, we'll touch on both of them. Spirulina is great as a protein source. So how do
0: you cultivate algae?
1: If you're talking about do-it-yourself, growing a little bit, uh, spirulina is probably a good place to start or...
0: Yeah. Or, well, let's let's start naturally. How, how naturally do they continue to multiply in the oceans? Oh, yeah. Because I'm sure people are not not at all sure how that happens.
1: Well, that's one of the advantages. Look at them. Looking at them as a potential food source is that they they reproduce very rapidly. So, in a matter of two or three days, you could double your biomass of algae. Wow. Of course, they yeah. they they fit they fix uh, atmospheric carbon. They turn. CO2 into organic molecules using photosynthesis so they're not using a lot of the inputs that we have into our current agriculture system. They, they can be grown almost anywhere really and it doesn't matter if you're growing them in arable land as long as you have light and you have carbon dioxide and you have nutrients. That's, those are the three things that you need right there to sustain a population of algae or cyanobacteria.
2: There's a, sure. lot of, there's a lot of uses for for algae. I, I think that people are just becoming aware of now I mean things dealing with wastewater and sewage all the mm-hmm. way through sure. uh, radioactive protection. I know that several strains of algae were used by the people who were working at Chernobyl essentially as a way to detoxify their bodies as uh, because the, the uh, spirulina dist- uh, demonstrated a really high capacity for removing radioactive particles from their bodies do you know anything about that? We wow. Can you go further with
1: that? I, I'm not familiar I mean, with the, Ch- the Chernobyl case. Yeah, algae definitely has a lot of applications. I'm not, I'm not familiar with the Chernobyl case. There is certainly a lot of documented cases of using it as a detoxifying agent. I know if you go to health food stores and you look at supplements, that's one of the things that they will prescribe to. They'll say that it, it's helpful at removing a lot of contaminants from our body, so they use it as sort of a cleanse. I think when we're talking about cyanobacteria, though, we're we're primarily talking about protein sources. One point I I want to make sure to make today that that was important to my research is that uh, cyanobacteria are a great source of protein, amino acids, different vitamins, and some micronutrients. But when you're talking about algae... I think the important take-home message is the omega-3 fatty acids. That's their unique value, yeah. And, and we really it's really the only place we can get these type of omega-3s are from, from plants, because animals cannot produce them. We don't have the desaturase enzymes to take saturated fatty acids and convert them into omega-3. So in, in my mind, the most important aspect of algae is the omega-3. Availability, the ab- availability to produce and provide omega-3s in our diet, because that's an essential requirement for us as humans and animals. For cyanobacteria, it's a protein source. I think that is its primary nutritional value, an, uh, a way to supplement our traditional agricultural livestock.
3: Yeah, so when you go and you purchase these, these things, the bacteria or the algae, mm-hmm. is, it, is it the sort of thing where it comes like in a dehydrated form, or is yeah. it a concentrate or how is it found i'm so completely unfamiliar with oh no it.
1: that's no that's a great question i it, it's uh it's something i think the vast majority of people uh would would agree that uh it's it's new for us here we we it's just not very well ingrained in our culture yet it's usually when you buy like spirulina, for instance, you can buy it in powder form. Uh, you can buy shakes. I've seen a number of companies. There's a company uh, that I've really been watching in California that is starting to make things like algae powder for baking. You, know, you can use it for all your baking purposes. They're making mm. pasta. They're using it to make oil, which would replace cooking oils. So that's just another, like palm oil, for example. I know one of the issues right. about sustainability is palm oil is, the plantations are typically done in areas of tropical rainforest where they're just clear cutting these areas down to grow palm. If we could uh-huh. take that and replace it with algae oil, that's you know, that's another example of how we could really take some stress off of the system there. So there's a there's so a of you know,
2: recently from oil that they derived from algae, recently they flew a Boeing 737 from Houston to Chicago. This
1: that's is right. the first
2: flight of its kind in history. So it, wow. I know, Joe, you might want to go into the difficulties uh, of getting the oil out of the actual algae, <laughs> sure. but it is a possible, uh, possible biofuel. And Absolutely. there are a number of companies that are doing a lot of work right now to try to make it into much more uh, sustainable fuel for the future.
1: Maybe, Absolutely, yeah, that's a good maybe point. Maybe you want to elaborate
2: on that a little, Joe?
1: Sure, that's a good point, Bill. Yeah, Boeing is one of those country uh, companies that's right up there with the research. They've been investing a lot in it. Uh, of course, the military has been putting a lot of money because they have a goal to replace. Uh, I forget what the number is, Bill. Do you know the, the amount of fuel that 50%, they want to? Okay, by, by the 80
2: percent by 2020, they want to be uh, so that's a big number on, uh, on bio-based biofuel. fuels, and they don't want to be. They don't want wow. to be food-based,
1: so it really it really reduces no. their options. Yeah. What they can that's, do. That's coming up quick, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, 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 was, is a coming up that quick. was started by Admiral Mavis a few years ago. And, and one thing that struck me as interesting, too, uh, on the topic of biofuels here, some of the same algae groups that are considered valuable as an omega 3 source are also valuable for the same lipid class for biofuel. So you could essentially mm. grow the same crop of algae and use it for multiple purposes. You could use it for biofuel, for providing protein, for making omega-3 oils, for uh, you know biofuel, pharmaceuticals, nutraceuticals, and you could take the rest and the remainder and feed it to livestock as a protein source. So you, multiple sources, multiple uses. I'm
2: sorry, go ahead. Amy. I was
3: going to say this is a this is a real sustainable process. Then I'm imagining that. You're, you, we started this conversation talking about the, um, was it the agua farming of this product? Is that the correct mm-hmm. way to say that?
1: Yep, you can say agua ac- And it could al- be set up culturing. anywhere,
3: algae culturing. Is, mm-hmm. it, is it a saltwater procedure, or is it also a freshwater? Because I know both. there's algae in lakes all over the place. It can be both?
1: That's right, both, yep. Uh, it's There are marine algae that are as well as freshwater, so it's... It, there are useful species in both freshwater and marine. Uh, currently, I think most of the species that are being studied in labs and in applications are marine species, but there are also a number of, of freshwater ones that are used in aquaculture as feed sources. So, really, the species, a lot of the prominent species, are both freshwater and saltwater species. You'll see them in both so places. So, how
0: close are how close are the algae to, say, watercress? because I I remember lots of Mm -hmm. watercress beds at home in England, and uh, obviously they they had lots of algae around them. And When we we used to build ponds and we didn't want the algae, we used to put a a ring magnet on the return flow, and that would prevent them from um, clumping together, I suppose. It it was quite an interesting effect. It it just prevented the algae from forming.
1: (laughs) That's right. So when we're talking about algae... What we we have to include both microalgae, those are the microscopic plants, the phytoplankton, and really phytoplankton include both cyanobacteria and algae, that's microscopic plants that flow at the at the mercy of currents that's plankton and then you have macroalgae those are what we would commonly call seaweed a lot of all the other water big water plants that those are brown algae red algae like kelp for example so i mean some of the smallest algae are one to ten microns in diameter little unicellular Uh organisms and then kelp can get up to what 40 or 50 meters in length that's a brown algae so yeah uh, but when we're talking about uh, aquaculture most of that is involving the micro Algae right now. There's not because of the size of the, the the seaweeds or sea plants and the size and the specific requirements. There's not a lot of land-based aquaculture that is growing these sea plants. Most of that is wild harvest, and that gets into a whole issue of uh, you know sensitive habitats. You know when you have farmers that may not be educated, sensitivity of a coral reef going out and clear you know just harvesting sea plants. That that's a whole other issue of sustainability there.
0: Yeah. They grow them off lines, don't they? In some areas.
1: In some areas, yeah. We've been trying to. uh, One of the groups I I worked with, we were trying, we were working with a number of farmers in the Philippines and throughout Indonesia. That's a very big part of their economy is seaweed farming. There just isn't a really centrally based organization to educate these farmers on how to grow it without really harming the, the habitat that they're working in, which is very sensitive habitat. So lines are often used. There's a number of different mechanisms. We've really been trying to educate them on how to grow them without harming the habitat.
0: So is there any byproduct that's left afterwards that's residual? I mean, I would imagine that the, the plankton and things is having a real problem with the little plastic balls that are covering the oceans these days, for example.
1: But right, does that yeah. get
0: caught up in the system and the process?
1: Well, plastic is certainly a big problem when we're talking about the ocean environment. It's it's being incorporated into the whole food chain, unfortunately, and uh, you know working its way right from the bottom all the way up to the the top fish. Uh, so, plastic is certainly something that we want to keep out. I mean, that's one example of why we would preferably want to maybe grow things in a controlled system and aquaculture as opposed to wild harvest. You you can take a lot of those toxicants out of the out of the environment.
2: It's also, it's also kind of ironic, Joe the fact that you can make biodegradable plastics out of algae.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
2: I mean, if yeah. we were making out of algae in the first place, we would never have a problem with uh, Absolutely. actually yeah, that's getting dispersed into the food chain.
0: You, you mean you could eat your own plastic bag?
1: <laughs> yeah. You well, could. you're
0: not going to eat your
2: plastic bag, <laughs> yeah. but you can make plastics no, out of, out of biomass <laughs> uh, algae, uh, of algae. And it is an eco-friendly, so, pla- eco-friendly plastic.
0: So what would be the ideal production cycle and, and place, for example, just out of curiosity?
1: A lot of the uh, companies that are turning to algae culturing right now uh, on a large scale, very uh, regions close to the equator where you get a lot of sunlight. Uh, in the United States, a lot of the, uh, the the big algae farms are popping up in uh, California, Arizona, Texas, where they get a lot of sunlight. And they have a lot of arid land, uh, which might not be used for other forms of agriculture. So you could take it in the very dry track of land. You could put a pond. You could use seawater to circulate it if you're along the coast. So yeah, sunlight is, is a primary factor when you're talking about these very large-scale open ponds. Uh, whereas hmm. you can also, for... Energym, I think one of the things that we're looking at is incorporating it into our our integrated aquaculture. So we have the different levels of it there where you can grow it in photobioreactors large closed tanks within a greenhouse and have it be a part of the food chain so you've got a closed system. So there's a number of different options uh, for growing it. If you want to grow it for a small a local community, you can do a, do so in a, in a greenhouse type space. If you're growing it for a huge commercial operation, you're talking about outdoor ponds, then something along those lines.
2: Yeah, I think I, in the I've future also uh, because we're going to need algae for a number of different very, very critical issues on the planet. Uh, we're going to have to replenish our soils because we're mm-hmm. losing nutrients, and algae is going to be a major part of that. And it's also going to become a major part of the, uh, of the feed that uh, both animals and fish are eating in the future that currently are basically, uh, I guess they're being fed by grain sources or mm-hmm. fish in the ocean, and that's going to be replaced by algae. There are places like uh, Australia, for instance, where if anyone had the, the foresight, and, and I imagine someday it might happen, they, you could pump literally billions of gallons of water into the interior of the continent if you had a, a large enough pipeline, mm-hmm. and grow massive algae ponds that could end up being mm-hmm. an enormous source of food, particularly in the you know in the eastern hemisphere for a feed source fish, and for agriculture and for farm animals worldwide. So this is something that you know some visionary person is going to who has the money and recognizes the need hopefully one day is going to do and realize that there are places around the world that are currently not being used for any useful purpose whatsoever that are, you know, deserts or dry bushland, that if they have the, you know, the proper, they're close enough to the equator and they have the proper elevation and you can, you know, put enough water into those areas and create artificial uh, lakes, that you can grow enormous amounts of algae that would have a tremendous commercial benefit.
3: Now, are uh, there any byproducts, or is there anything about, I know this is probably a very sustainable practice, but is there anything that, are there any caution signs anywhere for starting this kind of mass production?
1: Well, it, as I mentioned, there's, a, there's a, wide, uh, a wide range of different algae species and cyanobacteria species, so every one of them is going to have pros and cons. They're going to have uh, one that's been looked at a lot in the United States going back to the 1940s and 1950s is, uh, for example, a green algae called chlorella. And I know going back to like just post-World War II when uh, a lot of the Malthusian school of thought was looking at the population boom in this country and around the world saying, how are we going to feed people? and they went to chlorella. And so a lot of groups, the Carnegie Institution, Rockefeller Foundation, National Institute of Health, Atomic Energy Commission, they were all pumping money into looking at chlorella. So that one received a lot of attention. As as far as byproducts go for chlorella, one of the issues that we've had for for human nutrition is that it has a fairly dense cell wall. So it is something that we would have to figure out how to process it. First, we might be able to feed you know separated out more dense part to like livestock you know, ruminants for example they would be able to handle digest a product like that but really there is very little left over when you're done with this process because as i said you can take you can separate out the oils you can separate out the proteins vitamins and you can use a lot of it for nutraceuticals and then when you're left over you have a pretty rich fertilizer too for nutrients and for feeding livestock so it's a
2: clean biomass product So whatever is left over can actually be utilized. I think it's a zero-waste item. Once you have it, once you separate out the higher-value ingredients within that specific algae chain, whatever you're left with is still valuable and can be used.
1: It's very close to zero waste. I mean, it does require water inputs, of course, and organic substrates for inputs in in some cases, but very close to zero waste,
0: yes. I remember using some form of liquefied kelp. When we used to plant forests and things in England 30 mm. years ago,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it was very, very effective at maintaining the plants and their establishment, we'd probably cut the waste or lost down to about 5% where it would have been perhaps 25% before. So it, clearly it,
2: it's it got lots of add-ons that you could consider. I think the, the uses for algae in the applications are almost endless because there's so many different varieties of algae that they all operate differently. They're like Individual machines and, and literally millions of different species. I mean, there was one species that they did some research back on, and I'm not completely clear on this, but I think in the 1930s there was just some German research where they found an algae that was actually uh, creating hydrogen. You know, the idea is if you can create species, that's a fuel source. So, you know, right now they're trying to figure out inexpensive ways to separate hydrogen from, you know, from its uh, from a water molecule. The issue is, is that you have to put more energy into the system currently than what you get out of it, so it really hasn't become, at least that hasn't happened yet, although there's some other types of research that look promising. But algae is a very, very inexpensive way. And if you can find an algae that can produce hydrogen, you've got an incredibly valuable asset there because hydrogen can be used as a replacement energy source for all sorts of fossil fuels.
3: Well, wow, this is such good news. I've got this huge smile on my face. You know, there are a lot of times when we have our conversations, Bill, and we get such such a serious side. Joe, I really appreciate you and Bill and everything that you're sharing here today because this is very, very, very hopeful and positive. And I love that that's how nature works. You know, it seems like... We make these problems, but Mother Nature is not going to be defeated by us, and she presents beautiful solutions. And it looks to me like that's what's happening with us discovering and continuing to discover all the uses of algae. And if it's like a zero waste, I mean, it's a, it's a perfect product. It's just amazing.
1: Yeah, the one thing I would learn, I've learned as a biologist is that life always finds a way, and sometimes we just have to be paying attention. The answers are there if we can find them. And in the case of algae species, you know, there I think are somewhere between 40 and 50,000 that have been documented and catalogued. In terms of the number of ones that we we grow consistently in the lab, it's less than 200. The number of species that are out there, I've seen uh, estimates ranging from 200,000 to over 800,000 species. So we've really just scratched the surface. It's it's really an untapped resource right now.
3: So maybe in the future I can have algae algae Twinkies?
1: (laughs) 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 I know something we haven't gotten into
2: is its ability to to take toxins out of the environment. You know, algaes are used uh, a lot in settling ponds instead Mm -hmm. of using chemicals Mm -hmm. to uh, disperse pollutants and wastewater. Algae is used to clean out that that wastewater, but there, there there are certain attributes to certain types of algae, and I'm not sure if you know, Joe, if you can expound upon this. They can use algae to actually detoxify things like dioxin. And there's nothing that we can do from a chemical nature that we can create in a lab that can do what algae does. These are incredibly valuable organisms. Because they have the ability and the, the powers to be able to deal with complex chemical reactions in a way that we cannot mimic at this point, so our ability well, to, be able I think to use that, that, that like, to, to solve these problems is huge.
3: I think that sounds like a good starting point for our next talk, and I want to thank both of you for sharing all this fascinating information about algae thank you all for listening today we really appreciate your support and tuning in on growing trends again make sure to look for us on GrowingTrends.org for the podcast or we are on itunes you can look for us as growing trends there as well look for the blonde and the bread and then you'll know that must be them thanks for man and chris